Welcome back to What Voting Means to Me. I am your host, Mara Sutman Lee. Friends, it has been quite some time since I dropped an episode of this podcast. And I don't know if I really have a clear-cut explanation for that beyond the fact that it's pretty sticky out there. We're still living through a global pandemic. American democracy is perhaps under more threat today than it was when the last episode aired back around the election uh, in November of 2020. But we are still here. And I am very excited to be relaunching this podcast and to introduce you to today's guest, who is Spencer Mestel, an independent journalist writing about elections and voting issues who is based in Brooklyn, New York. He has written for many reputable outlets, including The New York Times, The Guardian, Vice, and The Intercept. He has also served as a poll worker, a topic that is near and dear to my own heart and one that we discuss at length in this episode. We also have a sobering conversation about the threats to democracy in the United States following the January 6th, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. In addition to his work for various news outlets, Spencer also has a fantastic newsletter called Spencer's Super Tuesday, which you can subscribe to. And you should also give him a follow on Twitter at Spencer Mestel. That's at S-P-E-N-S-E-R-M-E-S-T-E-L. That's at Spencer Mestel on Twitter. Finally, I want to note that in trying to decide when to relaunch what voting means to me, I was thinking about a number of different options. Perhaps an episode drop is a little Christmas gift to the election nerd world or one to ring in the new year. But I finally landed on today, January 6th, 2022, given its sobering significance in the American political consciousness. So I really think that describing and identifying what voting means across a range of perspectives and having in-depth conversations about the threats to American democracy as we do on this relaunch episode are only going to grow in importance in the months and years to come. So please join in, share, and subscribe, and enjoy Spencer Mestel. While we don't yet have financial supporters here at What Voting Means to Me, this is a friendly reminder that we are quite literally made possible by democracy. Thank you, democracy, for making this podcast possible. Hello, Professor. How are you? Hi, I'm good. You can call me Mara. It's totally right, fine. Nice to meet you. Yes, good to meet you as well. Thank you so much for your interest in doing this. I'm really excited to get to know a little bit more about your work and get to know more about you. 
I will formally welcome you to what voting means to me. I'm so appreciative to have you here, Spencer, and to hear a little bit more about your experiences living in American democracy. So the first question I have for you, the question that I ask of all of my guests is, what is your earliest memory of living in a democracy? This understanding of like, hmm, I'm in this place where maybe someday I'm going to be able to cast a vote or I have some say in governance and, and how our, our government is ultimately set up. So any sort of little thing you can pull out of your brain at any age, I'm just so curious to hear more about what that was like for you. I know that we must have learned about democracy a lot in elementary school, obviously, but the first memory I really have is the 2000 election. Mm. I was 11 years old. And all I remember is just a feeling that something had gone wrong. Mm. Like both growing up in a pretty liberal environment. So, you know, the winner was not who the people around me wanted, but also that the process had broken down. Uh, and I come back to the 2000 election a lot. I think it was a turning point in so many ways. And so it's, you know, interesting for me to just have such a strong emotional connection to that. I don't remember hearing about any specific point, just you know, maybe hearing about Florida, but not hearing you know, about the Supreme Court ruling or about the projections that night or who was eventually declared the winner or the, you know, the concession speech or the victory speech. I don't remember any of that. I just remember a feeling and I just remember sitting in the classroom. This system that I've learned about in the abstract is flawed mm. and it can... It cannot work and it can be dragged out. Uh, and so that was one. And then I remember being in high school, I think for George Bush's reelection. Mm -hmm. And again, same mood. Everyone's pretty down. And I remember my, my environmental science teacher saying, you know, it doesn't change the price of fish. And that phrase has just stuck with me because when you only have experience with so few elections, each one feels like a turning point. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe that was in a lot of ways, but she kind of had the perspective of like, well, I, you know, I've seen a lot of these at this point and it doesn't mean that our democracy is over. It doesn't mean that our world is over. It doesn't mean that the price of fish has changed. And I think that was a, a good perspective. Where my brain went when you said that was thinking about, okay, we're talking about a presidential election and the stuff that really affects our everyday lives. A lot of that stuff is happening at the local level. Mm. That's such an interesting point that you bring up about how when you're young, it sounds like to be sort of coming of age during the 2000 election – I was 14, so there was a similar, although I was surrounded, it was sort of the opposite. I was surrounded by folks who were pretty happy with the outcome. Uh, well, it is really, I, I, I don't remember having the same reaction that you did of like, hmm, something, it was frustrating um, to not know the outcome. But it's so interesting to think about sort of the compounded experience of being surrounded by folks whose candidate lost the election. And also, I think a really perceptive insight that, something was wrong. Something was sort of deeply flawed with this system. So you have these experiences. How does this shape your attitude towards the act of voting moving forward? Um, you know, does it sort of motivate you? Does it feel destabilizing? Does it not really have an impact? What are, what are some of the sort of the, the aftershock effects, as it were? That's a great question because I don't remember thinking I am one day going to vote. I'm going to participate in this process. And mm -hmm. it seems a little shaky. <laughs> it wasn't until I actually voted. I was 18. Uh, it was the 2008 mm -hmm. primaries. I was going to school in New Hampshire. 
And so we were the first primary state and, you know, what a luxury that I didn't realize at the time because we, everyone was coming through. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I saw Bill Clinton speak for an hour and a half without notes and take questions and just, you know, such close contact to all of these candidates and to the process itself. And again, that didn't really do it for me. It was when I walked into this auditorium You know, I walked from campus, maybe 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no line. I, ooh, would I have showed an ID in New Hampshire? I don't think so. Ooh, I uh, should know and, that too, and I don't. <laughs> you know, I know that they're making it really hard for college students to vote in New Hampshire now. But at the time, you know, I walked in, I said my name, the poll worker, you know, an, an older woman in this empty auditorium. She just hands me this ballot, and I fill it out, and I, oh God, did I put it in an optical scanner? Ah, <laughs> I should remember these details now. No judgment, I, no judgment. Forgive me. <laughs> uh, you know, I cast my vote, we'll say that. And I was like, wow, this vote that I just cast counts as much as anyone else's. Mm. Uh, you know, obviously, one person, one vote, we can talk about like why that is not true and problematic in so many ways. But like, sure. in that moment, it certainly felt like everyone else in this country just got the same vote that I did. Mm. And how amazing that I'm allowed to just walk into this place and be handed a ballot. I hadn't expected that. And I remember getting goosebumps. And that really kind of started my interest in it. Uh, in a, in again, a pretty emotional way. And, you know, they say that the best predictor, one of the best predictors of if you vote is if you vote in the first three elections. And I think having such a positive experience, you know, not waiting in a line, not having to cast a provisional ballot, uh, not wondering if it was going to count, voting for the person who eventually won, mm-hmm. you know, all those things make the experience so pleasant and made me obviously want to keep doing it. I'm glad to hear you highlight the... Uh, not just sort of the the act of voting, my voice is is being um, registered in some way. And I love to hear that you're talking about the voting experience, the actual pleasant exchange with a poll worker, easy, no lines, didn't have to show an ID. You didn't have any questions about whether or not your ballot was was counted. It's just so, I think, especially, you know, in this day and age, it's really important to emphasize um, how valuable those experiences are. And I would imagine that there's a lot of local election officials who like to hear that or would like to hear that from their voters, um, that, that they've had those yeah, I, good experiences. I don't remember registering to vote. And I think that's great. That's as it should be. The fact that I can't recall really any details of the process shows that it was seamless. Yeah. And, you know, for many people, that is what the process is like. And then for some people, it could not be more opposite than that. Yeah. Uh, And so, again, I'm just very fortunate that it was so easy. Uh, And then in uh, 2012, I became a poll worker. In 2016, I was in Iowa at grad school, and I was able to uh, experience a caucus. And so, you know, I was already interested. I got hooked that first time. And then I was just able to have so many more experiences that just made me fall in love with it even more. And, you know, kind of in love, hate with a process that is deeply flawed, that's deeply human, but is ultimately, at least for me, you know, very rewarding and, and again, very emotional. Now you're a journalist. You do a lot of work that examines our election system. You do a lot of writing that sort of really puts a, a, a lens up to this flawed system that you're highlighting. I would love to just know a little bit more about that trajectory and sort of if you, it sounds like you see it linked to these these sort of earlier experiences, the first time voting, sort of this really shocking 2000 election. And I would love to hear a little bit more about what that narrative looks like. 
Yeah, you know, I think it was really working the polls for the first time in New York. It was 2012. Mm. Uh, so it was uh, the year that Obama was reelected. And I can't really articulate why I wanted to do it. I think I was just like, this is a weird process. Again, it is weird that we all get to do this on one day. You know, New York didn't have early voting at the time. And so I got trained in this really kind of chaotic, everything in New York elections related is chaotic and a mess. Mm. So I, you get trained. And then at that time you would go, I was living in Manhattan, you'd go to a central location very early in the morning and then they would send you by car to your polling site. So they hadn't assigned you before the day of. Oh. So you're sitting in line at 3.34 a.m. It's November, so it's obviously cold. Mm-hmm. You're just in this long line and then somewhat arbitrarily, they're like, okay, you're going, you know, wherever. I ended up, you know, maybe 20 blocks south of my apartment. Mm. Uh and it was, again, so messy, you know, because from the outside, you think, well, I just show up and they hand me a ballot. And that's as much as you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not realizing that everything is tracked, right? They're telling you to keep the plastic wrap that the ballots come in. Mm-hmm. Again, this is a problem that people don't realize how much security and thought goes into the process, right? That's why they think it's so insecure. It's tough because, again, I am so grateful for this process. You know, I certainly get frustrated and impatient Uh, But it's tough to see, you know, voters on the Upper West Side who have to wait 15 minutes and are just aghast, you you know, who do this once every four years, maybe once every two, maybe every year, maybe, maybe. But, you know, most of us just see voting as this burden Mm. that you have to slog through. Uh, And if you're inconvenienced or delayed in any way, it is just catastrophic to you. So once I saw how much went into it, you know, I, I got more interested. I started writing about elections in earnest in about 2016. Uh, and I've been doing it ever since. You know, elections for me, democracy, it really kind of expands into so many areas of life mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you're talking about the census, you're talking about citizenship, you're talking about language access mm-hmm. uh, in minority groups. You know, you're also talking about who deserves to vote. You know, New York is expected to uh, enfranchise green card holders and people with work visas, mm. about 800,000 residents. And so for me, it is kind of a bottomless, I won't say a bottomless well, I feel like that has such negative connotations. It is a, a tree that keeps giving because mm. it just touches on so much of our society and so much of the issues. You know, you talk about military voting. Uh, it's just, you know, anything that I'm interested in, there's usually a voting angle to it. Yeah. You know, I think what I find attractive about voting and writing about voting is that it's this really abstract idea of democracy. And once we get to the elections, that's when, you know, the rubber meets the road and you have to actually implement it. And it's in that implementation that it's, it's very human, right? So if every person, you know, always looked up their poll site and was always very informed about who was on the ballot and always had their ID, you know, we wouldn't really be having the discussions that we're having, but, you know, we live in the real world and people Mm -hmm. have other things to do besides elections as they should, you know, and so they don't come prepared and they don't show up to the right place. And we have to accommodate that, right? Our democracy has to, I think, put the burden on the state to figure that out for people mm-hmm. uh, instead of putting it always on citizens, which is really the model that we've been working with. I'm curious about um, if you if you can sort of, I know it was now, gosh, almost 10 years ago, the 2012 election, um, kind of hard to believe. Was there Oof. anything that stands out to you as sort of being especially challenging? Like, were there any moments of oh my gosh, this voter is upset with me or I'm not sure if they're eligible. I'm just curious about what that, yeah, that rubber meeting the road experience was like for you. 
I have two really distinct memories. One is that the woman I was partnered with, because there were two people to each table, mm-hmm. uh, was just struggling. And at this time, it was all paper-based. And so you had to look up voters in this you know, huge paper manual. Uh, and it was taking her a while, and people were kind of heckling her. And it was a little bit easier for me to do. And so you know, people kind of just started shifting over. And I felt really conflicted, because on one hand, you know, a line is starting to form we want to serve voters. I'm frustrated that she's not going faster. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's a really tough job. You know, you are at the poll site at 5 a.m. You leave at 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. You get two one-hour breaks. You are not trained particularly well. And you're dealing with people who can be quite rude. Mm. And so, you know, I remember that of just being like, please cut this woman some slack. Like, again, this is this is your right, but it's also a privilege that you are able to do this. And I wish that you weren't all being so aggressive yeah. about it. And then, as you know, you know, poll workers have to maintain, they cannot show partisan bias mm-hmm. in any way. And, you know, they really emphasize that during the training, as they should. And even asking questions about what's on the ballot, you know, we will say, just read the instructions, right? So it's this kind of very, very intense Uh, barrier between us and any kind of partisanship. Mm -hmm. But that year, uh, you know, Obama was reelected. And I just remember our coordinator, there was just this really huge release of emotion because it was called very early. And so we were still doing the the return of Canvas, Mm -hmm. the final preparations for the night. And I think they had essentially called it. And I just remember, you know, the poll site cheering to me, we haven't really figured out how we want to structure elections. And so mm. one of the ways is to put, you know, an equal number of Democrats and Republicans together and that they will prov- provide oversight for each other. You know, we're seeing that break down in so many ways. Redistricting is happening now, right? And these independent commissions are just falling apart, right? Virginia, the Democrats just walked out. If a party is not acting in good faith, they can really derail this whole process. And so the other model is to do nonpartisan, right? Why do we elect secretaries of state who control mm. elections, and they have a partisan affiliation, right? That is odd. That is, again, kind of echoes back to 2000 in Florida. And mm-hmm. I would say the really unethical ways that the Secretary of State operated in that election. But, you know, to connect that back to this moment in 2012, people are partisan. Yeah, and I think yeah. that, you know, we can control our partisan biases in some ways, but I think it's foolish for us to pretend that they don't exist, especially in elections, right? Who is getting into elections and is so informed about the process and doesn't have any opinions either way, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that is an expectation for journalists that is very unfair. I'm sure it's an expectation for academics that yeah. you know we are dispassionate observers, and that's a fallacy. And I think that, again, I don't know the right way for us to structure these elections, to provide oversight, uh, to make sure that it's fair and transparent, but I know that pretending that people aren't invested is a mm-hmm. silly way to go about it. I don't want to suggest that there are not a lot of people acting in good faith, right? We just saw Washington Secretary of State appointed by Biden, and she's a Republican. You know, Colorado's previous Secretary of State, who began implementing risk-limiting audits, was a Republican and I think very widely respected. Mm-hmm. Maricopa County, their board uh, of elections, board of canvassers, I believe they were all or majority Republican. Mm-hmm. They certainly were not on board for this absolutely demented fraud. It. I'm not saying that you know they can't work together, but like we certainly have a crisis of administration right now. Yeah. We certainly have a very large and vocal section of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. you know, that are really undermining democracy in a way that has to be addressed. Mm-hmm. 
but again, I don't think that they should reflect or that they do reflect, uh, you know, the really hardworking commitment of a lot of election administrators who are truly doing God's work with, you know, no resources yeah. for the most part. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's, that's a great way of putting it. And I think there is a, hopefully a growing appreciation um, of, you know, just how integral election officials and poll workers are to American democracy. And I think that, you know, that's, that's sort of the work that I'm, you know, on my, my end, I'm really interested in, in making that part of this podcast. These efforts are to really make the inner workings of how democracy functions a little bit more transparent, both from the perspective of the voter journalist, um, you know, but also would love to have people like Brianna on, Brianna Lennon on, and, and have a conversation with her. You and I were talking earlier about how boards of elections or local election officials educate the public about mm-hmm. how to vote, or in New York City, especially about changes to voting sure. when we switch to ranked choice voting. To me, you know, obviously I support those campaigns. I think they're necessary, but the poll workers are where it's going to happen, mm. right? If you have poll workers who are saying, you yeah, know, just want to let you know, we're using a new system called ranked choice voting. I'm here if you have any questions. Again, having done this a lot, I know that voters will say they don't have questions and then spoil their ballot and yeah. come back to me, you know, very ashamed. Uh, oh. But, you know, if they say, even things as simple as, you know, in 2018, I think that there's good evidence that the ballot design in Broward County uh, prevented the Democrat from winning a Senate seat because mm. it was tucked under the language instructions. Uh, and there were so many undervotes. So many people missed that race. Mm-hmm. I think if, you know, if they had just noticed, if someone had noticed at the very beginning and said, oof, this is going to be really tough for voters to see. All right, all the poll workers, each time you check someone in, I want you to say, don't forget about the Senate race in the mm. bottom left corner. You might miss it. Or there are actually uh, races on the other side of the ballot. Go ahead and flip it over. Right. If you have engaged poll workers, I think nothing can replace that. No amount of information before voters get to the poll Mm -hmm. site matters as much as that experience uh, with someone, again, saying something as simple as, you know, just make sure that you read to the end of the ballot or uh, you're actually allowed to vote for more than one candidate uh, and the instructions are Mm -hmm. right on the ballot envelope, Mm -hmm. whatever it Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's such an interesting point. I'm sort of working in my brain thinking through sort of what the the psychological mechanism is there, sort of the difference between that in the moment interaction versus like, oh, I got a mailer or I got, you know, saw this Facebook post from my local election official. I think that there are, are different kinds of voting related activities where those where different outreach efforts are are going to be more or less effective, but it makes sense that sort of like in that moment, you're, oh, okay, thank you. Like, oh, this is someone who's trying to help me, give me more information. Um, it's just sort of like a little priming effect that happens. And now that I think about my own experiences, I've generally had very pleasant experiences voting, um, but I... I don't think I've ever had a poll worker say to me, like, hey, let me know if you have questions about how to read the instructions or interpret the instructions or don't forget there's a reverse side. The thing that is most challenging to hear in many respects is when the public servants that are meant to serve voters are not doing that job effectively or and or but and also, um, however you want to put it, they don't have the resources. I've heard from and talked to so many local election officials and it is a tough time to be a local election official. I do not envy them. I don't know how much of your work has dug into sort of the, the threats that many of them are facing, death threats and awful emails and doxing. It's really, really scary. I'm going to ask kind of like a, 
I think it's a pretty dark, depressing question. And then I want to shift towards sort of hopefully it doesn't have to be an uplifting uh, conclusion. But I, I think I'm curious because you are you are an expert in American democracy. This is sort of the central focus of your work uh, and your journalism. Um, what in, in this sort of quagmire that we find ourselves in? What do you see as the thing that stands out as the, the biggest challenge, sort of the biggest hurdle to overcome? To me, you know, you, you point out the threats against poll workers. That is obviously a very scary development. To me, the underlying motivation, the underlying threat for all of this is the idea that if there's nothing to hide, then why don't we just do X, mm. right? So what is the problem in counting all the ballots again? What is the problem in allowing outside experts to inspect these machines? Mm-hmm. What is the problem in, and again, that is that is a bottomless well, mm. right? That is a process that has no end because, you know, as we were talking about, elections are messy. And so if you find discrepancies, I don't think any reasonable election administrator will tell you that they've run an election where there wasn't one discrepancy. Sure. And most likely, almost certainly, it was found and it was corrected, right? We inputted these uh, results twice, right? That happened in Michigan mm-hmm. uh, with a Republican clerk and the Republican Party really threw her under the bus, mm-hmm. right? Even though she said, you know, we, we caught this, we corrected it. Michigan didn't allow them to pre-process absentee ballots. They had so much to do on election night. And so again, there is always something to dig deeper on. And again, if you don't know what you're looking for, we saw this in the fraud in Arizona, Mm -hmm. uh, things look odd to you. And so to me, it is this that we have now on some level allowed that to be a normal part of our elections Mm. and that we have given it permission for people to continue to say, well, what if, well, what about this? And mm. again, what's the harm in? What's the harm in doing yeah. has, I think we have allowed that to fester mm-hmm. and metastasize. And that is fueling everything else because uh, once you say, well, no, it's done. This process is over. It is certified. We are moving on. I'm curious about sort of the role of elite rhetoric. The rhetoric is everything. Mm-hmm. It's, every, it's the fundamental cause mm. of all of this. Yeah. This is not an organic process. Mm-hmm. And even just seeing politicians you trust, if you trust a politician and they're saying, we need to do this, we have questions, we have concerns, you're going to believe that, mm-hmm. right? Because on some level, we have to trust our politicians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is kind of central to democracy. Mm-hmm. And so... Do I fault people for believing, you know, this really insane and unfounded rhetoric? Mm-hmm. Do I, I guess blame is the wrong word. Like, I certainly understand why it is that they feel this way. I'm certainly disappointed that there is no, at least from my perspective, attempt even to understand the process mm-hmm. or to dig into these claims. But, you know, I'm susceptible to the same biases, Mm, And so I don't want to pretend like I'm not, I don't think that's fair, but I, and so again, I see why people, uh, why this rhetoric convinces them and persuades them. 
but it doesn't make me any less sad. Yeah. Oh, no, of course not. No, not, not, not at all denying or trying to deny that it's a, it's frustrating to say the least. And I think deeply concerning. And I, I, I think that when I think about, you know, there's been decades of decline in confidence and trust in the process of elections and election outcomes. And I, I think about the point you made, well, why not do X? Why not do this audit? And it seems to me like these ostensibly election integrity oriented measures have become a means not to the end of secure elections, but a means to the end of mobilizing, of a means to a very, very different set of ends. And then that just sort of gets added like fuel to the fire, to the really understandable lack of insight in the public, I think, about how elections are run. Because like you said earlier, folks have busy lives. I think not everyone is going to have the time to dig into what the process of counting absentee ballots look like. And yeah, it's, it is sad as one way of putting it, frustrating, frightening. Uh, I, I feel all of those things too. You know, I, th- I think we need to look at the incentives because if the politicians who are requesting these audits had to pay for them, Mm. I think it would be a very different story, but they are either funded by really dark money outside interests, mm-hmm. as that wonderful Jane Mayer New Yorker piece pointed out, mm-hmm. or they're funded by taxpayers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we see the same thing with recounts. There's a very <laughs> huge difference in outcomes when campaigns are paying versus when taxpayers are paying or when there is a, you know, a mandatory threshold that triggers a recount. Mm. And politically, we're not seeing any downsides. And to me, these audits really open up the door to make stronger claims of voter fraud in 2022 and 2024 Mm -hmm. because they can say, well, this election was being audited a year afterward. Mm -hmm. We had to do three audits to confirm the accuracy of this election because of irregularities, right? There's a proven track record that elections in this country are not safe Mm -hmm. and that need to be recounted. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I hope that we have or that we are about to hit a tipping point where it is just so over the top that people can't sustain it anymore. You know, even in countries where they're asking for audits where Trump won handily, like in Utah or I think a county in North Carolina, Republicans are saying like, enough is enough, Mm -hmm. right? This is just political theater. Truly, it's most obvious and most shameless. (laughs) But, you know, we're not going to know for a while what the tipping point was or if there was. And if we're talking about power grabs, yes, these audits, this rhetoric is very concerning, But the redistricting process this year is Mm. also horrific, Mm -hmm. right? North Carolina, I'm not going to get the numbers totally right, but they're about a 50-50 state. And I think their maps are going to draw like a 13-3 Republican-Democrat congressional delegation. Wow, I hadn't caught that. Wow. It is. I remember seeing on Twitter a map of New York where you could draw it so every single district would elect a Democrat. It is just incredible how... Uh, you know, the power to draw maps, especially with technology, mm-hmm. allows you to create a landscape that is so unreflective of voters. And, you know, I'm talking to experts now who are saying this could be the last cycle before we have a permanent minority party. Oh, my God. Because redistricting is gerrymandering is so severe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the courts have demonstrated, the Supreme Court at least, that it is unwilling to intervene in partisan gerrymandering. Yeah. Uh, we know that partisan gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering are 
oftentimes one and the same. Uh, so I'm curious to see if mm-hmm. claims of racial gerrymandering have more success in the courts than partisan. Texas's maps are very intense. Yep. Illinois, right? The Democrats, uh, of course, they're going to respond, right? Yeah, These are people yeah. whose job it is to increase their numbers as much as possible. I'm very sad to see the uh, independent commissions really falter. But, you know, I think Mm. Arizona's independent commission did a very good job. Colorado did a good job. Michigan chooses 13 people at random. They send out 250,000 applications randomly throughout the state to citizens. Oh, wow. Uh, They they get those back. They randomly choose 200. Democrats and Republicans are each able to strike 20 names. And then from there, I believe they randomly select 13 Mm -hmm. people. And the maps those 13 people have drawn at random, uh, I think it's uh, I'm forgetting the numbers of the breakdown. I think there are four or five independents, and the rest are split between Democrats and Republicans. Their maps are very fair. Wow. They're not perfect. You know, maps are never perfect. It is no. a very difficult process. But I think it is, that to me is heartening that there are alternatives. And in my work, that is something that I'm always trying to highlight, that mm. we cannot just be overwhelmed by how depressing it is, because <laughs> it's quite depressing. But uh, there are solutions. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wish that we could learn from each other. People in this country are so have such a knee-jerk reaction and fear of the federal government. It is mm. something I do not understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I wish that the federal government were more involved in elections, in registration, in setting standards for localities. The fact that the cost of voting is so disparate based on where you live is embarrassing for our democracy. Mm-hmm. So th- I think this is, um, it's a sobering but good way to segue to sort of the the question that's at the heart of this podcast, what voting means to you. I mean, we're talking about redistricting, which really, you know, as you're describing it, as we've experienced it, has lays out the limitations of representation and what one's vote means uh, in the United States. Um, But I would love to hear if there's anything you would like to add or offer to that question about what what the core act at the, the heart of our democracy, the vote, what that means to you and or what it's meant to you um, throughout the time that you've been working on these issues? Yeah, I think that voting to me, you know, I've talked about it a lot as a privilege because I feel privileged that my experience has been so rewarding, so mm. easy, so seamless and so forgettable, right? Mm. And so many of these details don't stick out because I wasn't waiting in Georgia for eight hours to cast a vote. Uh, but I think we have to remember and understand and emphasize that voting is a right. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it has to, I think that we have to transfer the burden from citizens onto the state Mm. and that that is the only coherent way to run elections, uh, is for the state to assume these burdens because it is best equipped to, and, people should be able to forget about their voting experiences. Mm. They should be able to show up unprepared uh, and still cast a vote. I, you know, We live in such a punitive country, mm. and I think we especially relish in punishing people who we consider not prepared enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, well, why didn't you have an ID? Why, did you, why are you out of precinct? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what an absolutely demented way to see something that is ostensibly the foundation of our society, Right oh, I'm sorry, you know, you were a half mile from where your actual poll site is. Therefore, none of your choices count. Yeah. Even though we could very easily count for all of the statewide races. We've just gotten it into our heads that that is an appropriate response 
But no, right? I think that voting should be a big 10. I think that we should really do all that we can. And there are limits, right? People do have to take some responsibility. People do have to inform themselves. But certainly the balance is so far off right now. And so to me, voting means that the government is making this as easy as possible on us. Mm. That is its job, right? Yeah, there is so much evidence from other countries who do it much better that that is really one of the best ways to get more folks participating and engaged. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. But I love the idea that voting should be a forgettable experience or it should be memorable only for like the, oh, the positive feeling you got as a student in New Hampshire voting for the first time of like, wow, I'm actually engaging in the system and and putting my ballot. We'll say you put your ballot in the optical scanner. I I can't (laughs) pretend to know what New Hampshire uh, voting machines looked like at that point um, in time. I, I think that your your point also about how this is a very punitive country you're you're hitting on some of like the most ingrained aspects of american political culture individualism i think is sort of a subset of that that punitive um, or maybe the punitive characteristics of the united states is derivative of the individualism um, that is you know really ingrained in our political culture will i will ask uh, if you have anything you'd like to promote I write a weekly newsletter. It's called Spencer Super Tuesday. It is about voting. It is structured around uh, pretty much every issue is both the good and the bad. So I'll look at one underreported story. I'll tell you what's going right. I'll tell you what's going wrong. Again, I structured that very intentionally because I do not want people's takeaway every week to be, this is a fundamentally broken system and there is no hope for change Mm -hmm. because I am still very excited by the things that I'm seeing and by Mm. the innovations that I'm seeing in the people, again, doing God's work. Uh, And so I want the newsletter to reflect that. Uh, You know, we, again, we cover a lot of things. Uh, The issue that I am just about to finish and send out uh, today is about the non-citizen voting Mm. in New York City. And so would strongly uh, love people to subscribe to that. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Spencer Mustel, just my name. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my vice piece, I'm sure we'll publish probably before this comes out. And so I'll send that to you. Yeah, please do. Uh, and that's talking about DEF CON and uh, the voting technology and the hackers and kind of the can of worms. Oh my gosh. Is. I'm so excited to dig into all of this. I will go <laughs> hit subscribe on your newsletter right now and I will absolutely promote it. Thank you so, so much for taking this time. And I'm always kind of honored when people reach out to me. This is a little podcast right now. People in the election space are so wonderful. <laughs> I adore them. They're so easy to work with. Uh, I'm guessing that you've heard or worked with Tammy Patrick. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and right, it is uh, a constant source of inspiration and joy for me that I get to work with these people. Oh. It is very rewarding. And again, it is such an interesting balance of that and people who are really so mission-driven and, and ideal-driven and then kind of compared with just the somewhat depressing moment that we're in. But I'm hoping you know one side prevails over the other And I feel like one of my low moments came before I went to a reporting trip uh, to Georgia uh, to observe their gubernatorial race in 2018. Mm. And I was able to meet with someone from the ACLU and I was just really kind of defeated at the time. Mm -hmm. And this person wasn't, this person has been doing it so much longer than I have. 
And to see them be like, okay, well, this person hasn't given up just because they're a little frustrated because things aren't going our way. And so, you know, I, it would be silly for me too as well. Mm. And so I'm hoping we're through the worst of it, but yeah, time will tell. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's an amazing, um, quality that you're cultivating to be able to hold the hope and sort of the reality at the same time, um, which I think is an understandable challenge for so many of us uh, in this day and age. But love, I feel the same way about the elections community. Um, my, my colleagues in academia that study this stuff and the election administrators I get to talk to uh, are salt of the earth, I like to say. <laughs> Just absolutely wonderful. Excellent. And thank you again for having me. This was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. All right. Take care. Um, stay safe. Stay one. healthy. Have a great day. Bye. You too.